Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. Benji and I just watched the end of Stage 7 in this year's Tour de France. The most exciting stage so far. I'm pretty excited. Some would even say G'd up. How are you feeling after that finale, Benji? Honestly, great. I love stages like this, echelon stages. I keep on talking about the Vuelta stage of last year, Guadalajara, that stage that basically exploded the moment it started and had a average of over 50k an hour. And today reminded me of that in many ways. And the profile of the day, you know, it doesn't look like one of those really interesting stages. There was a Category 3 climb, 3 kilometers at 6%, uh, which crested with eight and a half kilometers into the stage. So the earliest categorized climb in this year's Tour de France. And that meant if anything happened on that climb, you know, the race could really break apart. There was then an intermediate sprint at 57.5 Ks to go and a few sort of rolling climbs before that, then 15 Ks at 4%, uh, like a steady climb, then a long gradual descent uh, broken up by a category four from 73 Ks to 120 and then about 50 kilometers of flat exposed to the wind with projected uh, 25k an hour to 30k an hour southeasterly cross tailwinds. Then finishing in Laval about after 168 kilometers stage with a one kilometer long 2.5% climb in the last seven kilometers. So that was the profile. That was the projected weather conditions. Sam Bennett was just ahead of Peter Sagan in the green jersey competition going into the stage. What happened from the Bell Benji? There was honestly no real breakaway attack at the start. So after a few kilometers, Cosnefroy was the early guy to attack to try and get the points on the Côte de Luzenson, which was that first third cat climb. But while he was attacking, we saw in the peloton some regrouping. We saw that teams came to the fore and Bora decided to start pacing. And when I say start pacing, they really started pacing like crazy. And sprinter by sprinter, they kept dropping from the peloton. Riders like you and Kristoff Nizzolo pulls because of his rib, obviously. Kes Ball and even Mats Pedersen, who I would expect on this kind of stage, in this condition at least, to be up there with the front end of the race. He was also gone on the first hill of the day. And they basically kept pacing towards the top of that court, the Luzonson, where they actually just caught Cosnefar, just crossing the line. And Cosnefar even had to do a bit of a sprint to even take his KOM points. At that very moment, Bennett was at the back and had dropped already, also losing time towards the peloton. So at this moment, you basically have three major groups in the sense that you've got the peloton, then you got the group with Bennett, and then we had the group including sprinters like you and Kristoff and such. So in that first climb and in that first split where there was multiple groups on the road, it was actually, I would say, 70-30 the climb rather than the crosswind causing that split. And Bora Hansgrohe, the, the rationale for them riding so hard on the front, which we should sort of set out, is that they wanted to drop Bennett before that intermediate sprint and drop the other sprinters. The fact that none of the other GC riders were really in any trouble uh, and they all made that first split 
suggested to me that it was the climb that put people into difficulty and maybe a little bit of the crosswind as well sort of after the climb. But that's why Pedersen got dropped because I agree with you, Benji. Surprising to see Mads Pedersen get dropped in crosswinds, but I think it was more the climb in that first stage and just a fantastic move from Bora Hansgra. But, yeah, what happened after... Bora just kept on pacing, and they did that, you would expect, until the intermediate sprint, maybe. And they indeed did that until the intermediate sprint. At that moment, we had the intermediate sprint happening. And Sagan actually didn't win that. He came out second just behind Trenton, so he didn't take the full point. But it was enough to put him into the virtual green jersey, so that's great for him. After that intermediate sprint, some people would suggest that they would stop pacing Bora Hansgrohe because their main goal of getting that intermediate sprint is done. But they know that Bennett is at that point on like three minutes and that you and such are on six minutes of that group. So they were thinking, if we can keep this up, then we can actually get a stage win like this. And they indeed kept on pacing. I was somewhat surprised to see that no other teams were pacing at that point next to Bora because I would expect some other teams to see a possibility of gaining extra stuff out of this. For example, we had CCC just sitting there. Why do you think that CCC would not be helping here, considering Trenton was there? I think they just didn't think they had to. I think they knew that Bora Hansgrohe was going to keep doing it, and I don't really agree with it because, yeah, Bora Hansgrohe kept pacing, but it was at a it was they weren't pacing as hard. Daniel Loss had been on the front for like two hours. It ended up not mattering because the Bennett group pretty much gave up. Uh, Cavagna and you know it's surprising to me really that they couldn't come back actually if we before we go to the proper stage finale is it surprising to you Benji like they got Cavagna, Tim De Klerk, Sam Bennett I'm not sure which other riders they had there back with Bennett that they couldn't make it make it back to that lead group it's a kind of a testament to how just how clinical Bora Hansgrohe were in that first half of the stage and that's what made this stage so exciting is it's not just waiting for the finale. You've got this race for the green jersey, which I think we called out was going to be interesting in yesterday's podcast. I think it's a bit of a testament towards the idiom that a team is only as good as your weakest link. And I believe that Bennett was their weakest link at that point. He had exploded already in the race. He was sure as hell not looking great at that moment. So riders like Asgren and Kavanyan and such can pace hard. But if someone behind you can't follow and probably had severe difficulties following their pace as well, then they're going to have to adapt their pace to Bennett to make sure he can follow. And I believe that that was pretty much the uh, nail in the coffin for Bennett there as well, because you can have the best team in the world, but if you can't perform yourself, then you won't be able to follow them. And I think that's the case here. The 100k to go, Pelton had three minutes on Bennett, and then there was another three minutes to Ewan and co., the sprinters still in that group, in the first group, was Sagan, Wavanat, Jasper Stoyven, Klamov Ventrini, Trentin, Colbrelli, Hofstetter and Mezget. And I'll let you say what happened next, Benji, because it's one of your favourite moments in the race. So you named the sprinters. We've got a few sprinters that still have a team there that could actually help out. And one of the teams that actually decided to help out in the uh, peloton at that point with Bora was Kokar's team. He had two of the mistakes that he put up front and they decided to pace as well and they did quite the majority of the work the next 15 kilometers and the moment that Kokar put those two domestiques at the front there was one person in the peloton that decided well this is not fast enough for me let me try it let me just try and do a 96 kilometer solo so that was the hand attack 
and he basically just attacked in front of the KOM gate of the Col de Poronong and took those KOM points and the prize money because Thomas Yen is one of those riders that actually cares about the prize money. Do you think that it's a useful attack? I mean, it's a it's a good lesson in where is it where is a good place in a race to attack. In that, if you are pretending like you're just going to contest the King of the Mountains points and just try and get that prize money and go in front of the peloton, quickly get them and then come back. But then he obviously didn't do that. And then, you know, maybe people are less likely to say, oh, he's actually going for a proper attack. We should get on his wheel. But people let him go. And no, I don't think it was a good attack. I think it was actually a waste of Thomas Duhent's legs. Obviously, Thomas Duhent knows more about which stages and when to go on a breakaway than I do. But I think a lot of people actually, I think if it was any other rider, we, a lot of people would be more critical of saying, oh, well, that's kind of a waste of your legs, given that there were crosswinds coming up. It, I thought, and we said on the pod yesterday and many times, that Ineos were going to try something whenever there were crosswinds. And on today's stage, if there were crosswinds in the last 50, Sagan and co you know, you got a couple of sprinters teams there, B&B, could, were pacing as well. It was a long way out given that it was like a false flat downhill, crosswinds, etc. If there were like a few Category 3 and Category 2 climbs, I think it's a much more sensible attack because actually on the, the few climbs there were, the Hent was gaining time on, say, Daniel Oss when he was pacing for Bora on the front, but it was just too hard a parkour for him to, for, to, for him to make that stick. Like the watts he would have to do, relative to you know the watts people were doing pacing it's just not possible given that they were they were motivated behind him as well it's not like they weren't motivated he was brought back with about 36 kilometers to go when Ineos decided to hit the front in the peloton and that was basically in the city that was named a lot before the stage because that was the moment that they turned north a bit so the wind was more cross tailwind and basically had the perfect ingredients for the echelons to happen, and they sure as hell did. Yeah, so we saw Ineos lining up before that 36Ks to go, and crosswinds were mooted for maybe from 50Ks onwards, and we saw the GC teams, Ineos in particular, who, i got to say, I think Ineos are, the be- are still, even with a weakened squad, Ineos are night and day better than any other team at placing their GC rider in safe positions throughout stages in all terrain. I still, you know, Kwiatkowski is just unbelievably good at it. Luke Rowe was actually dropped on that first climb of the day, so they didn't have Luke Rowe to try and help in crosswinds or on this parkour. But, yeah, they came into this, into Castra. They turned right, and then Ineos pinned the front. We saw they went through like a little roundabout or a chicane, and once you have those roundabouts, roundabouts are like the instigator of, or a chicane or a corner, or the instigator of an echelon, you know, about to form because everyone has to go single file through it. We saw Kwiatkowski on the front with Castroviejo, Bernal, Amador, Carapaz, all on his wheel, five Ineos riders, and then you saw Kwiatkowski just move into the gutter, or like, or not a gutter, sorry, he's a bike rider's width off the gutter, and I knew it was crosswind chaos time, baby. And I don't think the crosswind was that strong. Like I don't, it wasn't like some Hemvevelgen carnage, but it was strong enough to make a difference. And it dropped. You know, Pogaccia was dropped. Richie Port was dropped. Mika Lander was dropped into Group Two, and instantly they lost about thirty seconds, forty seconds. So 
you know, Benji, you said yesterday, I think, or one of us said, oh, it's why we, some people are saying, why were Ineos attacking or going on the front with seven, eight Ks to go before the finish? It's like, yeah, it probably was, you know, maybe futile given the, the wind wasn't particularly strong, but you can gain a lot of time very quickly using the strength of a working echelon against an isolated GC rider who's been dropped. And, yeah, is there anything I've missed there, Benji? Were you surprised that Pagacha got shelled from that group? Are you surprised by anybody that safely made it into that first echelon? I'm always surprised that riders that call out the echelons potentially happening before the stage are still caught out with it because pretty much every rider in the interview before the race said that Costa was going to be the place where you need to be at the front at every single moment. And it's a bit unfortunate that we see riders like Port, we see riders like Pogacar, Landa, people that are really actively working for their GC. They are in the wrong place at that point. And yeah, it's basically a easy beatdown on their GC level because they now lose quite a lot of time in a stage that is not necessarily one of the stages they expected to lose time in. It's too late to come through that corner in Castra and then feel the crosswind, be 50 wheels deep and be like, oh shit, uh, I've got to move up now. It's too late because Kwiatkowski is already absolutely drilling it on the front, three hundred, you know, 200 metres in front of you, 100 metres in front of you. So you have to be... That's why Ineos moved up early. That's why the minute Ineos moved up, Jumbo Visma was straight up. Uh, and then that itself starts to increase the pace and it makes it harder for the other teams to move up. So maybe it didn't help that he didn't have Christoph there as well to help him, Pogaccia. But yeah, it's a shame to see him, who I thought was going to be a real contender for GC podium. And it's not certainly not uh, dead, those ambitions, by a long shot, but... What then happened was the crosswinds died down pretty quickly, I think, and all the GC teams started to work together because whilst we saw nothing yesterday, the Tour de France can explode into excitement at any moment when one of the GC riders or GC contenders is vulnerable. So yesterday, no one wanted to do anything, but you better believe if Egan Bernal had got dropped, if Pogaccio was not looking too fresh and had dropped off the back or something, all the other GC teams would have worked. That didn't happen, so nothing happened really on GC. Today, the second Pogaccio got dropped and Landa and Port, Thibaut Pino put all the FDJ riders on the front that were in that first echelon. Jumbo Visma put uh, Sepp Kuss and George Bennett on the front to drive it. Ineos were using Jonathan Castroviejo initially um, as a pacemaker, almost entirely the Spanish time trial specialist. So all the other GC teams were basically preying on Pagacha's misfortune, the right thing to do, because uh, they want to eliminate and put as much time into that GC threat as they can while he's down. And, um, yeah, they did a really good job today. I was actually really impressed by FDJ. What do you think, Benji, about Ineos dropping back Castroviejo when Carapaz had a mechanical with 15Ks to go. I don't really mind because I know you're going to say that he's not really their GC guy. He hasn't been performing up to standards. And because of that, they shouldn't drop back Castroviejo, who could potentially help Bernal at the front. But I believe that Bernal was in a safe position at that point and that he most likely would not have been able to help Bernal too much at that point. 
So when Karapaz was dropped behind because of that mechanical, I do believe that it was a good idea to even try to have Castroviejo work there, but we saw that didn't really work out because basically the moment that Castroviejo was near Karapaz, the uh, group of Pogacar was already catching Karapaz. So at that point, Castro pretty much gave up already and just went to the back of that group and they let UAE bring Karapaz back. I mean, I, can't, I do agree with you, really. It's probably good for Karapaz's morale that he has sees the team dropping a rider back for him. He wasn't really a threat on GC, I don't think, before this stage. He's certainly lost a lot of time now. Um, I can't even see where he is. I'm looking at GC overall. We'll get to that in a second after the stage. But Benji, do you want to set the scene? Five Ks to go. Can you set the scene of who we've got left in this first echelon? So we had a stage of 47 kilometer per hour average. And in the last five kilometers, we started off the last five kilometers at a speed of 69 K an hour. Basically a normal sprint speed. That is insane. We had Van Aert for Jumbo Visma. Sigan, who had his teamwork all day long at Bora. Ofsteter, but he crashed throughout the stage. So he wasn't really in shape to potentially sprint at the end. For Israel's startup nation, Koka was still there. Had his two men work throughout the stage. So... Definitely should have the legs to work out here. And I somewhat expected Alaphilippe to sprint as well because he was the only guy from the Koenig left there after they basically dropped everybody back to help out Bennett. I think Davinades might have survived as well, but I'm not sure about that. But Alaphilippe was still there and he would not leave a potential chance like this out of his way because he has won sprint stages before. Not much, but it is always possible. So... That indeed was the case. He actually sprinted. Before the sprint, I had an inkling of that Wild Van Aert was actually going to contest it. Um, I thought during the stage, when I, once I saw that first echelon had gone, he was in it, and that Roglic had survived. Once Roglic had survived that Ineos assault in the crosswind section, it was very unlikely once that crosswind died down and it was more of just a, yeah, it was a tailwind into the finish. Roglic didn't need too much protection. Well, Van Aert protected him a little bit, but Roglic wasn't really needing too much help. He was fine. And when they sent Bennett and Koos to the front to pace, I thought Wild Van Aert is going to be contesting this sprint. And he should be, if, if Wild Van Aert was contesting this sprint, he should be the heavy favourite for the sprint. And as you said, Alaphilippe was not going to let this another stage win, an opportunity for a stage win, go begging. But he kind of stuffed up this sprint or made it a little bit weird. So it was NTT actually leading out on the front for Edvard Bosenhagen. He was second wheel. He got left on the front a little bit early. He had behind him Jesper Stuyven, uh, Wout van Aert. Peter Sagan was actually on the wheel of Wout van Aert and was, yeah, not in great position, not a great, de- not a great finish to the stage for, Wout, uh, for Peter Sagan. But what happened was Alaphilippe came from quite a way back behind all those sprinters, I think behind Cockard as well. Cockard latched onto the wheel of Alaphilippe and Alaphilippe started sprinting really early and I I, I gotta say I'm not actually a big fan of Alaphilippe I find him kind of grating (laughs) he started to sprint to the left hand side he moved over a fair way to the right hand side you can see it because there's a center seam in the road he bumped Stuyven who then it kind of stuffed up Jesper Stuyven's sprint then bumped who then sort of moved into Edvard Bosenhagen then Alaphilippe throws up his, his hands as if Jasper Stuyven's done anything wrong, but Alaphilippe was the guy who pinched Stuyven between Bosenhagen. And while I'm saying all this, by the way, I saw, because we saw the front-on-camera shot, 
Wav Van Aert, who bided his time, actually. If you watch the overhead shot rather than the front on, watch the overhead shot and just watch when Wav Van Aert truly launches and you'll understand how much of a formality this really was. Van Aert was looking to see whether he had a space between Bosenhagen and Stoven in the middle. He was leading, he was laying off Bosenhagen's wheel a little bit. The minute he saw that Bosenhagen was holding his line and there was going to be space on the right-hand side, Van Aert just went five, seven pedal strokes, thank you very much, cruised to the line, posted up before the finish, a nice, what was it, half bike length in front of, I think, uh, Edvald Bosenhagen or Brian Cockard came in third as well. Nice win, for, nice second place for Bosenhagen actually. But yeah, Wout Van Aert, imperious, getting the job done when he wasn't even supposed to be contesting this sprint, but just because an unbelievable performance from Wout Van Aert. I was pretty G'd up in the live stream. What did you make of the sprint, Benji? Do you criticize Alaphilippe the same way I did? I need do. He does swing left and right quite a lot during that sprint. And in general, it's also a bit ironic that he complains then. So that annoys a bit if you're watching that. Nonetheless, it was a great sprint by Wout Van Aert. It's great to see Eddie DeBoss back in front in a sprint. He uh, sure as hell held his own against sprinters like Kokar and such. So that's pretty cool to see as well. And Kokar is on the podium. So I guess he's happy as well. And we've got Plenty of French riders in the top 10, actually. We've got Laporte coming fourth, Venturini coming sixth. Stephen actually ended fifth after that collision with Alaphilippe there. When it comes to the sixth spot, yeah, that was Venturini, but seventh, Hofstetter. Then we've got Bernal coming eighth. Wonderful sprint. Yeah, he just finished with the uh, sprinters there. Didn't actually try to really sprint for it, but was up there at Yates coming in ninth from Valvade, finishing off the top 10 there. In previous years, you would probably have Valverde even contest this as well. But yeah, that's not the case. And he's clearly not in a form even close to the years that were before. So you might be thinking, why is Peter Sagan not even in the top 10 in a reduced bunch sprint like this? And he was in a bad position, I think, from the overhead shot. And then he, when Alphalete kicked, Sagan swung left, bumped into another rider, forced him to unclip. So he was he didn't really contest the sprint in the end because he had to unclip out of his pedal. So a shame for Sagan, you know. The, his team worked so hard all day. Yes, he did. He's now in the green jersey once again, I believe. He's uh, nine seconds ahead of Bennett because of the intermediate sprint, but not being able to even get on the podium or come you know, second or third in this stage, which I thought was almost a guarantee, is a shame for him. And, yeah, I just think... It's surprising to me. I'm not going to be like one of those people who says, oh, Peter Sagan, he didn't win the race. He's over. He should retire. I think that's sort of ridiculous. Like, ultimately, they still achieved what they wanted to achieve today, Bora Hansgrohe, and Sagan was showed that he's so much better on a climb or at the start of a race and a sharp climb or crosswind like that compared to all the pure sprinters like Bold, Ewan, and Bennett. So, yeah, I'm not going to criticize Sagan too much. He had to unclip. But yeah, I guess a shame for him. Anyway, uh, on GC, the movements on GC is Guillaume Martin moving into third now, nine seconds behind Adam Yates. Roglic is second, still three seconds behind Yates. No movement there. And the big loser for the day is Tadej Pogacar, who's now one minute and 28 seconds behind Yates. And yeah, like one minute and 20 seconds behind Roglic. Roglic has 10 seconds on Bonal still uh, after those bonus seconds the other day. Esteban Chavez actually has 
lost a lot of time on GC as well, as well as Mollema and Richie Port and Mikel Lander. Carapath as well, interesting to know, he's two minutes now behind Adam Yates because he that's a cumulative amount of time he's lost because he lost probably the 90 seconds today and the 30 seconds from the other day. But anything else you want to talk about from this stage, Benji? Do you think, what do you think about my opinion of Sagan? Am I treating him too nicely with kid gloves or yeah, how do you feel about his sprint? I don't really feel like his sprint is that up to standards this year. And we've seen it off in the sprints and it's not that this one day will change that. Wout Fanard is now third in the green jersey classification and is only 32 points behind Peter Sagan. So imagine if Fanard wins on Champs, for example, and gets another 50 points, then that's going to be a dream. And talking about victories of Fanard, I want to give a fantastic fact for any Belgians out there. Wout Fanard is the, ne- well, the last time a Belgian cyclist won two stages in the Tour de France was Tom Bonin in 2007. It's been 13 years, and here's Fanard. Oh, yeah. Riding as a domestique. Not even supposed to be contesting these sprints. <laughs> and he's he's definitely going to get a chance on the Champs-Élysées. You know, obviously Ewan and Bennett will be probably the slight favourites over him for that, but I wouldn't count him out for doing anything in this year's Tour. So far, he's the MVP of the Tour de France, I think by a long way. Wild Van Aert, just an incredible Tour so far. Already a success for Jumbo Visma. I don't, I don't really... Whatever happens with Roglic... It's still been a success because Wild Van Aert is looking to me like the most, almost the most complete cyclist in the world. But that's a debate for the off-season. The most exciting stage of this year's Tour de France so far. Bora lighting it up at the start. Crosswinds, the pure sprint is getting dropped. I think Caleb Ewan is still on the course trying to complete it. <laughs> then Thomas de Kent attacking. Ineos coming to the front trying to drop some form of the other, some of the GC riders in that crosswind section and doing so, then a reduced bunch messy sprint with the GC riders leading it out, trying to gain time on Pagacha. The sprint is taking it over with about 1,500 to go and maybe our favourite rider, Wafanart, winning the stage. In regards to the uh, predictions that we made towards the stage, we're pretty much off. I recall us uh, saying that we had uh, <laughs> Caleb Ewan on that and... Halfway the stage, I was like, maybe he zigzags another seven minutes to the uh, peloton again. But yeah, that was not happening. So it was not Caleb Ewan. And we definitely lost that prediction. That is for sure. In regards to the uh, next stage on the menu, it is one that is considered a proper mountain stage. Because we've got three major climbs on the day. That is a stage from Cazin to Ludonville. And it's one that I've spoken about quite a lot accidentally called this one Mio to Lavaux. So, oops, that's my bad. I meant that we spoke about Ludonville in one of the earlier podcasts, not about today's stage. And this stage actually has three major climbs. We start with the Col de Monte, about 50 kilometers into the stage. We've got 6.9 kilometers of 8.1% in that. We have an intermediate sprint just before that climb, so the sprinter should be able to take that unless a breakaway goes and there's less points in the offer, but I would expect Sagan to go into the break tomorrow, personally. In regards to the second climb of the day, Porto Bales, huge climb, major HC climb out of category. We've got 12.2 kilometers at 7.6%. Then we go downhill and basically directly start the last climb of the day, which is the Col de Peresurde. And on that is 9.7 kilometers of climbing, 7.5%, and then a downhill into basically a flat part of around 4 kilometers till the line. 
Well, the Parasurda also has bonus seconds on top, so we might see some action for that on that first cat climb. In regards to the downhill of the Parasurda, it has had quite a few crashes in the past, but it's not directly the most technical descent. It has some technical corners as it has... How do you say that? <laughs> what, hairpins? Hairpins, that's it. Hairpins. What word were you saying? Is that is that Flemish? Tomorrow, I can't remember what our predictions were. I like to have two bites of the cherry. It's hard to say, right? Because we've had that stage yesterday on Monteguel, which, don't get me wrong, not as hard as this stage um, at all. But the GC teams, you have to say they let Lutsenko win. After the stage, I looked at the watts per kilo. Easy, you know, 5.2, whatever. They let Lutsenko win. They could have caught him if they wanted. Is that going to be the case again on this stage where they're happy for a breakaway to take those bonus seconds and, you know, they're worried about, oh, well, it's Pino, I think, said in the media yesterday, oh, well, if it's 12 kilometers from the line, the top of the climb, then we're not going to actually attack because it's not worth it because then you have to hold it, hold on that margin on the descent and that's a lot of pressure. So I don't know. I don't know who's going to win this stage. I'd expect Lutsenko to try and get in a break again if he's feeling all right. I think Roman Bardet, I can't believe he hasn't lost time deliberately uh, so that he can get in the break for this stage. It seems like a big oversight for me from my perspective. But, yeah, I, I'd still probably pick, pick Roglic for this stage. I don't see anyone dropping him on the climb. And in the run into the finish, yeah, maybe. I mean, Egan Bernal in a flat sprint could probably take, take Roglic as well. But, yeah. If it's the GC guys, I'd say Bernal or Roglic. If it's a breakaway, I've got no idea. <laughs> Maybe Lutsenko again or Thomas de Gent. It's probably a bit hard for de Gent. In regards to your predictions that were made on the TDF preview, you had Jumbo attacking Ineos, so your Roglic one might actually uh, happen. In regards to my predictions, I was talking about a breakaway and I am somewhat guessing that will still be the case. I'm expecting like one rider to survive or something from the breakaway maybe. But then again, I do expect a lot of action in the peloton from the GC riders that lost time today, for example, because Amolema, I think he's going to try to do something because he's never the guy that just gives up. And Richie Port, most likely, I don't expect him to attack. He also has to watch out. Is it stage nine tomorrow? Or is it stage eight? It's stage eight. So he's got one stage to go that is relatively safe for him. So <laughs> in regards to um, potential people that might attack, I don't see Port really attacking too much. Uh, who else lost time? Landa Pogacar. Maybe some action Pogacar. from him that is possible. Yes, indeed, a Pogacar. And I had Alaphilippe for the stage from the breakaway, but he won't be in the breakaway with that GC. No. So I don't see that happening. But Philippe could honestly, well, it depends how hard no, the pace is on the pedestal. I don't, I don't think the pace is going to be low enough to allow Philippe to attack at the end of the pedestal in the downhill. So I'm afraid that Philippe might not be a, a good call for this one anymore, but I'm happy to be surprised. Well, I think Pogaccia losing time today might be a blessing for this stage because he's not someone who takes it lying down. He's a pretty aggressive rider. I think Pagacha will attack tomorrow, even if it doesn't make sense, even if there's Ineos trying to ride conservatively on the front, Pagacha will attack. I hope he does because um, I'm sure he has fine legs on the uphills. He just missed out on the split today because he was out of position. I don't think Jumbo Visma, I don't think the train is 100% right now. 
Um, Bennett and Coos looked pretty good on the flats today, but yeah, I'm not I'm not convinced the the Yumba Visma train in the mountains is as strong as it was at Dauphiné. But yeah, hopefully something happens on GC tomorrow. We'll get one LRCP hashtag LRCP question in from Twitter. That was our preview for tomorrow's stage. But from Max Falkenberg. Do you think dropping Pogacar now will turn out to benefit Roglic later the most since he will feel comfortable working in the mountains with Pogacar on a Vuelta-style tag team? What's your first impression from that, Benji? I do believe that there is always that Slovenian combo in those two riders. They are pretty good friends, so I certainly believe that they are in a group, that if they are in a group together, potentially just ahead of the uh, GC favorites for some reason at some point in the PC stage, then they will work together. I'm not sure they're going to actively plan out attacks together, though. So most likely, if they accidentally end up together, they will most likely not necessarily help each other out, but go for a common goal. And that's possible. Outside of that, I don't really see them yeah, planning out a crime against the other people here. Yeah, I agree. Like, you look at today's stage, uh, Roglic sent his teammates to the front the minute Pogaccia got dropped to drive the pace as well. So there's no, yeah, there's no holding back between those two riders or certainly not from Roglic's perspective. If their incentives and interests are aligned, sure, the communication is much better and they'll, you know, they'll be on on board with it and it'll be smoother. But I don't think, yeah, they're not going to work together in a sense that they'll plan an an attack or anything. They're, They're rivals and them both being Slovenian, doesn't really change that from my perspective but i'm excited for tomorrow i'll be probably live streaming tomorrow's again i obviously will be given that i like the called the perisud climb i think alexander vinokurov has the uh the quickest time up this climb him and iban mayo back in the the glory days when everyone was on that oj <laughs> i think it's from, from that from the correct side are we allowed to say that is this am i allowed to be cynical on this podcast we didn't really we haven't really gone through the ground rules <laughs> oh, that's not even being cynical, is it? That's just facts. <laughs> did Vinokurov actually win that stage, or did he give it to Mayo as well? No, there's a breakaway up the road, but Vinokurov dropped Armstrong and Ulrich and gained a lot of time to get onto, I think, like fifth or third on GC. It was really close to Paris that stage, and Vinokurov just went, just went mutant on the pursuit with Mayo, <laughs> and uh, Mayo wasn't even pacing; it was just Vinokurov, and yeah, gained a lot of time, uh, and Ulrich was pacing a lot for Armstrong and the, uh, chasing them. But, yeah, maybe I'll save that. I won't stop myself doing an analysis video on that at a later date. That's all from us today. Make sure you rate the podcast if you listen on Apple Podcasts or if your podcast player allows it. Apparently, Spotify, there aren't really a rating. There isn't really a rating or review system. I mean, if it's not too much hassle, just do it on Apple Podcasts or preferably just tell a friend about it and say, hey, there's these two lunatics who are doing a pretty good podcast where they – deep dive, analyze every Tour de France stage or every pretty much professional race that goes on. So thanks for all the support, guys. Benji, any last words? Ciao. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 